Everything before the cross and the resurrection looked forward to that pivotal moment in history and everything after it has been radically reshaped by what happened in Jerusalem that weekend. Everything changed. Faith, hope, and love as we know them today would not exist if it were not for that weekend in Jerusalem. And today's, this weekend is the day we remember the beginning of that. And I, I wrestled with a decision this week. You know, typically we go directly to the, the chapters that talk about that death and that resurrection and the entry into Jerusalem. And that's good. But we had a unique opportunity this, this week, right in the middle of our preaching series in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, to look at what an actual difference that death and resurrection made in the life of one man named Saul. And what a difference that made in his life that rippled to you and I. And just, just for starters, as we get ready to dive into Acts chapter 9, I want to say if, if the risen Jesus had not met Saul on this Damascus road, you could remove Romans through Philemon from your Bible. Maybe Hebrews. Okay, at least 13 books in your New Testament would not be there. And you think about the, the hole that that would leave in our faith. You think about things like Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all that believe. You think about Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You think about later in Romans 8, we have the spirit of adoption by which we call him Abba, Father. And later on, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You think about 1 Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have it. 2 Corinthians, your power is made perfect in my weakness. You go into Ephesians, it is not by works we're saved, it is by grace through faith. You think about Galatians, you've been set free. Stand firm then, do not be enslaved again by a yoke of slavery. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And I could go on and on. We would not have any of that if the risen Jesus had not radically impacted the life of Saul on the Damascus Road. Perhaps even larger than that, how many of you in here have no Jewish blood in your, in your body? The large majority of us, none of you that just raised your hand would know Jesus Christ as your Savior if this chapter had not taken place, this event in history had not happened. All that to say, the fact that we remember Jesus died for our sins and rose again makes a radical impact on history and it makes a radical impact on our lives today. And I want to dive into the first 17 verses of Acts chapter 9 to look at just how he encountered Saul on the Damascus Road. And, and as I looked at this, I saw it broke down, in, and this is convenient for preachers, it breaks down into three nice sections, right? Preachers love three, right? And we like to say it's God's way because he's the Trinity. And, you know, if you throw a poem in in the conclusion, it's even more solid. <laughs> the first section we're going to look at, 1 through 9, deals with Jesus and Saul. 
Then we're going to look at a middle section that deals with Jesus and a man named Ananias. And then we're going to look at a third section that talks about Ananias and Saul. But I want to start at verse 1 and go through verse 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And that still ties back to something. You guys remember we talked about Stephen's martyrdom. He was the first Christian to give his life for Jesus. And that this Saul was standing there. People were putting their coats at his feet. And later on, he himself would say he was giving approval to the death of this Christian. And after Stephen was killed, it started a chain reaction. The Bible says that Paul went from door to door, destroying the church in Jerusalem. But what this is saying is, taking care of business like that in Jerusalem, breathing out these murderous threats, just like my breath stinks like garlic after I eat at Olive Garden. He was breathing, eating, living. These Christians must die. And it it just became part of who he was. He breathed it out. Doing it in Jerusalem was not enough for him. He's going to go here in verse 1. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. This is a one-week journey away from Jerusalem. You remember a lot of the Christians scattered when the persecution started? Saul said, I'm going to track it down. Even though it's a week away from here, he wants warrants from the high priest. You watch CSI or any of those shows? Show up at somebody's house. You got a warrant? He needed a warrant from the high priest to go to Damascus. That gave him the authority. He got him. He goes to Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, you may or may not know that people that believed in Jesus were not called Christians until later on in the book of Acts. It was actually kind of a derogatory term when it was coined, and we'll talk about that later. But before that, that term came to pass, the way they described themselves is we are people of the way. About nine times in the book of Acts, we are people of the way. There's even a church in California that bounced off of that and called themselves the, the church on the way. I like that. You think about the idea of the way, you think about what Jesus said, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That may have been some of what they had in there, probably at the core they may have been reflecting the fact that we're on the way to our eternal home in heaven. That may have been part of it, but that's how they were known. And Paul was going there to find them, those who belonged to the way, those who believed in this Jesus and followed him, whether men or women. He had no soft spot in his heart for, for women. He wasn't content to just take the men. He was going to take the men and the women so that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now I want to tell you something interesting about this. He believed with all of his heart that he was serving God. He believed at the core of his being that he was pleasing his God by doing this. And just to put yourself in his shoes a little bit, there were verses in the Old Testament that said, whoever is hung on a tree is cursed. So he's saying, there's no way this Jesus that these people follow who was hung on a tree and as far as I'm concerned is now dead can be the one we've been waiting for. He's, he's cursed. And as long as we let these people believe in this Jesus 
it's going to delay the coming of the real Messiah because our country's messed up by this group. So, so we're going to go out, and as it says in other parts, he persecuted them to death. Not only Stephen, but he indicates that he persecuted others to their death, believing fully that he was doing God's will. That's, that's an important part of this story. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Other passages in Acts talk about how it was noon. So you say a bright light at noon, sounds like the sun to me, but the other passages say it was even brighter than the sun. It was a light that shined at noon, brighter than the sun that shined around him. He fell to the ground. A lot of times we imagine him walking. But this was a, a week's journey away from Jerusalem. There's a good chance that with his status as a, a Pharisee and his standing, he was probably riding a horse. So you know that old phrase, this guy needs knocked off his high horse? That may be exactly what's going on here. This bright light comes and, and perhaps he falls right off of his horse to the ground. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. And I want to stop there for a moment. Whenever a name is spoken twice in the Bible, you better pay attention. If it's your name, you better listen. If you ever hear God say your name twice, listen up. Like, like Jesus said that once to Martha when he was at their house. Martha, Martha, why are you so anxious? He was really trying to get her to see he was the most important thing. Peter at the Last Supper, he's like, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, asked to sift you as wheat. He was preparing Peter that he was going to deny him three times. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, I would have sheltered you under my wings, but you won't come. It's always serious when God says your name twice. He's, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, so far, what Saul knows is there's a bright light. And we believe from other passages that he's actually getting a look at Jesus here because other passages in the New Testament state that Jesus met him. But he doesn't know who this is. All he knows as a Pharisee is there's a voice from heaven asking me why I'm persecuting them. And you can imagine the confusion. I, I'm serving you, God. Why do you persecute me? So in his confusion, he asks a natural question. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And you can only imagine what these next words did to him. <laughs> I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. All of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where, like, <laughs> you were talking to someone that you had no idea you were talking to, like, one, one time, I was at a party with a, a young adult from our college group when I was at the Heights Church. I, I showed up a little early, and they were still getting things set up. Some of you guys may have heard this. They were still putting the dips in the bowls and the chips out, and I said, hey, I'll help. What can, what can I do? And I started throwing chips in the bowl, uh, chips in, in the plate and dip in the bowl, and the mom got really mean, like, because I, I, I got a little bit on the side of the plate or something. It got on the tablecloth. She's like, could you be more careful over there, please? Just keep it in the bowl. And then I did something with another food product that spilled over the side, and she went off on me again. And I'm inside thinking, like, 
man, I'm just a guest here that volunteered to help. And, and then the college student comes in and introduces me as his pastor from the Heights Church. And you should have seen the color drain out of her face like this. She thought I was just some 19-year-old friend of his, which she should have treated the same anyway. She had a false dichotomy going on in her mind. But once she knew she was talking to the pastor like that, she freaked out. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's like a minor version of what's going on here because all of a sudden Saul's thinking about all these people that he's killed and thrown in jail and realizing that somehow, some way, they are connected to this voice from heaven who is now saying he is Jesus. The Jesus that he believed was dead was a curse and is now speaking to him out of a bright light. You talk about a transformational moment. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now there's something in that phrase alone that ought to comfort those of us who are part of Jesus' church. The, the church is described in the Bible as the body of Christ. When the world or anyone else messes with the church, you know what Jesus sees it as? He's so intimately connected with us. Paul talks about us being in Christ. When people mess with the church, he says, you're messing with me. He says, you are messing with me because that is my body. That is part of who I am. That's the the way Jesus views his church. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now I want you to think about this. Saul goes on his way to Damascus as a man in control, right? A man on a mission. A man who's got a posse with him that he orders to do what he wants. And his idea is, I'm going to arrest people that are part of the way. Instead, God arrests him on his way and says, you are not in control, Saul. I am in control. And he went to lead people out of there in handcuffs back to Jerusalem. Instead, what do you see here? He has to be led by the hand into Damascus because he can't even see. The man who thought he was in control, not his way, realized he was not and that his way was different than God's way. And before we go on to the next section, there's a couple things I think that we ought to wrestle with. First, he was convinced in his mind that he was doing God's will. And I think it's possible whether you believe in Jesus or not to to create plans in our own minds and convince ourselves that this is what God would have me do. But really, at the end of the day, has nothing to do with what God wants. It's just what I want to do, and I'm going to put God's name on it and justify why I'm doing what I'm doing. And the world tells us, hey, if it feels right when you're going out to do this thing, that thing, then it is right. You make your own truth. You do what you want. This passage says it doesn't matter how much you believe what you're doing is right. If it is not God's way, it is dead wrong. And we stand the risk of being rebuked by God. So we need to search our heart and say, 
okay, is this path I'm on really God's will for me? Or have I just convinced myself of that because I like this path? Maybe it's actually not his will at all. I think also, just to remember, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, sometimes in order to get your attention, God will allow you in his grace, strange as it sounds, to get knocked off your horse and blinded in your life so that you'll realize the things you've been pursuing will not meet that ultimate need in your life. He doesn't do it because he hates you. He does it because he loves you. And I'd say the same is true as he disciplines his children. He, he does that with us sometimes, right? We, we get our eyes and our minds set on the wrong priorities. What really is going to fulfill me? And he'll strip those things away so that we will realize we are completely dependent. Maybe you're here and he's doing that tonight. I'd encourage you, don't, don't be angry at him. Don't see him as someone that hates you. He's, he, he wants you to grab onto reality and stop living this fantasy that's not going to meet those ultimate needs you have. Let's go on to the, the second section here, God and Ananias. I like this part because if you've ever been led by God to do anything scary, you relate to Ananias. If you ever sense God leading you into something, you're like, hold on, God. You, you, you'll like this guy. In Damascus, there was a disciple follower named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. What are you talking about, God? This is Saul, the one that kills us. He kills Christians. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how, how much he must suffer for my name. As I think about this passage, there's a couple things I think about. One is, obviously, Ananias had a living relationship with his Savior. It wasn't some dead set of beliefs in his mind. He just had these facts memorized, and that makes me a Christian. He spoke with the Savior. The, the Savior spoke to him, and, and he listened to him. And he even spoke his concerns back, honestly, like, God, you sure about this? And God didn't rebuke him. He, he assured him. And, and I just wonder, you know, the Bible says you and I have the Holy Spirit in us who, who leads us this day. It says those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And I wonder if we have this kind of vibrant relationship with God. Maybe it's not a vision like this, but maybe it is. Maybe it's an inner voice from the Holy Spirit as he reminds us of the truth of God's word. Maybe it's as we sit down with the Bible and read, but are we hearing from God as to how I should live my life this week, this month, this year? And are we obeying? And I want to say, if, if, 
if our faith has become merely a set of facts, merely a book that we read, merely a mental exercise, perhaps our lives have gotten too busy. Perhaps we're not taking time to listen to God. Because this is the New Testament church here. Okay, this is not Moses on the mountain. This is the New Testament church. And he's hearing from his Savior. And I believe God leads us today. I think we ought to evaluate, is is there anything in my life that's making me so busy? I don't have time to listen. My life is so loud. My life is so crazy. I don't hear from him anymore. I'm disconnected. Another part of this that I think about that that excites me is just the, the realness of this relationship between Ananias and Jesus. Just that freedom to express his concern like, Jesus, this makes me nervous. This makes me really nervous. Do you guys feel any of that when God called you to move up here from Tucson to start a gospel rescue mission? (laughs) Is that you? (laughs) I know I felt it when it was time to step into this chapter of church planting. God, there are moments where it felt so strong and other other times where, where are we crazy? Are we just... But we talk to him about it. And he assures us. Verse 15 has a piece that that I think is important too when it comes to Saul's life. And when I read this, I just want you to think about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where, where he wrote later on in his life, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. But then he went on to say, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. This is the man that wrote that. And this experience shows us that's not just some theoretical idea for him. Because listen to what God said to Ananias. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. That's all non-Jews and their kings and and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He knew firsthand what it was like to be saved by grace and then to have good works prepared for him in advance by God. And the idea here is similar to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, pastor in Germany at the time of the Nazi infestation who stood up for the truth and was in prison for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin and more about courageously pursuing the will of God in your life. Avoiding sin is part of it. God saves us from sin and wants to live a holy life, but some of us stop there. We define our Christianity by what we don't do. I don't drink. I don't go there. I don't watch this. I don't smoke. I don't, I don't, I don't. And that is all there is to our Christianity. And what happens with Saul here and what he's saying in Ephesians 2 is it's not only being saved from sin, it's being saved to the best, most fulfilling, most difference-making, world-shaking purpose you can imagine. And if all we're defined by is what we don't do, we're missing God's big plan for our lives. For, for Saul, it was so specific. 
to, to take the message to the Gentiles, their kings, and to the people of Israel. For us, we know at the very least that it is similar to go into all the world and make disciples, tell others about Jesus, baptize them when they believe, and teach them to obey everything God has commanded. But I believe as we pray and listen and seek God and look around what's happening in our lives, He can lead us to that neighbor that's ready, that coworker that needs a hand and, and some encouragement in the truth of the gospel, just as specifically as He led Saul. He has good works prepared in advance for each one of His children. And I hope that we're ready to embrace that. I hope that excites us. He's got a much better purpose for our lives than, than we could have ever dreamed up ourselves, a much more fulfilling and meaningful, eternal purpose. Last part, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. That doesn't preach real well today. You don't hear a lot of sermons about that. But that's what he said about Saul, and that's what he says about all his disciples. You take up your cross and follow me. There, there's a certain measure of sacrifice that goes along with following Jesus. Saul went there to make these Christians suffer. God's saying, Saul, you're going to become one of them, and you're going to suffer alongside with them. And I just wonder if we're willing, willing to embrace that for our own lives. Just to say, God, I'm going to start, stop demanding that, that everything be a rose garden if I'm going to be happy with you. I'm going to claim your promise, Jesus, that you said there's going to be trials. I'm going to claim this one that you said there's going to be suffering when I follow you. But why? Why would we do that? Because we have a deep understanding of who Jesus is, what he did for us on the cross, that he rose again, that he took our sin upon himself. If he really did that, he's really worth this. And, and we ought to be like the, the man who found the treasure in the field. And he went and sold everything he had to go buy that field. And it says he did it joyfully because he knew that treasure was so valuable. As we sacrifice and suffer and serve Jesus, boy, it was even hard to get that word out. You see that suffer? <laughs> We've got to keep in mind why we do it. it. We ought not to do it with a, with a sad or begrudging heart, but knowing full well who this awesome Savior is. Verse 17, Ananias and Saul. The meeting happens. Uh, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Uh, why don't you to imagine Saul sitting there blinded for, for three days, not eating, not drinking, just crying out, trying to figure out in prayer what is going on here probably feeling very, very alone at this point. I mean, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the cream of the crop in that crowd. He was, he was at the top of his game. If you read what he wrote about his life before Jesus, and now he's blind and not even eating. And for this stranger, Ananias, 
uh, to walk in, put his hands on him, and call him brother. What a, what a comfort that must have been. Brother. And, and I think about the step of faith that was for Ananias, knowing all that he knew that we went through earlier. Just days before, Saul was on a manhunt. And now Ananias takes God at his word and says, you are my brother. If Jesus accepts you, I accept you too. And I wonder if our church, the church at large, has that kind of posture today when, when people come in, especially, especially from lifestyles of overt sin. Do we have that same sort of instant welcome for them? It says, hey, if God loves you and forgave you and made you his child, I welcome you here. You're my brother. You're my sister. Or do we have an attitude of skepticism when they come in? No, not him, not her. I know, I know their past. This is going to change in a week. You know, this is just a show. I pray we're a church like Ananias that's ready to put our hands on people that embrace Jesus when they come in and say, brother, sister. And even those who haven't yet come to that point, I pray we'd be Jesus to them. The friend of sinners. Wonder what kind of posture we have. I hope it's like Ananias. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul was totally broken down. He was, he was sightless. He was weak because he hadn't eaten. His former strength of his position and pride was gone. He needed strength from somewhere. Where would it come from? And it tells us right here. He has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. No longer would his power come from, from his drive or his religious zeal or his effort or his works. It would come from God himself and the Holy Spirit and enable him to do supernatural things that he could never do on his own. That's the same today when we come to Jesus broken and embrace him. He says, I know your strength wasn't enough. Holy Spirit is going to come live in you and give you supernatural strength to do the good works that I've prepared in advance for you to do. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And I think maybe the best description as we close of why, 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 why did God save this man? I mean, basically, Saul had, had spit in Jesus' face. He had killed Jesus' followers. Close to that time, if you, if you messed around with Caesar that way, if, if you didn't even go light some incense and say, Caesar is Lord, you know what happened? You die. That's what happens when, world, when you come up against worldly kings. He came up against the king of kings. He killed the king of kings' followers. Why would the king of kings meet him with such mercy and such grace? Paul says it best in his own words. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, 
But for that very reason, because I'm the worst, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He saved the worst man he could possibly find to show all of us that no matter what you've done, where you've been, I love you. I died for you. I took that worst thing you're thinking of you've ever done in your life upon myself and I paid for it. And I rose again and when I did, I conquered death and I conquered sin and I conquered the grave and I conquered Satan for you. I died for the chief of sinners and I died for you. I love you. Believe in me. Trust in me, and I'll give you life. Lord, I thank you so much for this story of Saul. Man, what what encouragement it gives us. Uh, Lord, that uh, you met him on that Damascus road, not, not to kill him, not to destroy him as he deserved, as we all deserve, as he would later write. The wages of sin is death. But he went on to say, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, I thank you so much for your grace in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that the truth of that would wash over this room. Those who have trusted in that already, Lord, may it assure them deeply of your unconditional love and acceptance in Jesus. And I pray to you, Father, if there's anyone in this room that came in feeling like they were the worst of sinners, like they were beyond your reach, that this message would penetrate into their heart, your love would sink into them, and they would cry out to you, saying, Father, I believe in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins that he rose again to give me life I trust in that and that alone I'm done going my way I want your way God maybe you're here and God's knocked you off your horse so that you'd realize your need don't don't fight it don't don't try to get back on that horse Admit your need for Jesus and welcome him in. We'd love to talk with you. If that's you, I'm available. That's the cry of our hearts. That's all we offer you here is Jesus. We got nothing else. We got no list of rules that'll save you, no, no, no services that'll save you. We offer Jesus. That's where salvation is, Lord. I thank you for this time of year that does remind us, Lord, of the cross, of the empty tomb. And Lord, I pray it would shape the way we live the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.